1966, the bluesman Albert King wrote the song, recorded the song, Born Under a Bad Sign. And uh, in it, he lamented, I've been down since I began to crawl. If it wasn't for bad luck, yeah, you know it, I wouldn't have no luck at all. And you know, some people just seem to live a charmed life. Have you known anybody like that? They, and they, they kind of don't get it, right? When they see hardship, they just sort of think, well, if they don't have bread, let them eat cake. Oops, you know, what's the deal? And isn't it really just a matter of believing and positive thinking? The prosperity preachers ask us. God only allows misery and hardship to come into the lives of sinners, Job's friends proclaimed, and the Pharisees and Sadducees echoed. And yet God's people have known persistent difficulty and misery and hardship. Naomi lamented when she returned to Bethlehem, and people asked, is this Naomi? She said, don't call me Naomi. That word, by the way, that name in Hebrew means my delight. He said, don't, she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. The word means bitter. She said, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Ligonier theologian Stephen Nichols, in his book, Getting the Blues, a, a, a book about connections and reflections between blues music and Christian spirituality, turns Naomi's lament into blues lyrics. He writes this, I had nothing, I had nothing at all, so I went to the mountain. I had nothing, I had nothing at all, so I went to the mountain, and death was all I found. I said, I'm done now, I said, I'm done. I'm going to make my way back down. I said, I'm done now. I said, I'm done. I'm going to make my way back down. I have nothing to offer. Go and leave me all alone. I lost everything, everything. I lost it all. I went away full, and I'm coming back empty. It can't get far in life if God is against you. This is the third Sunday in Advent. I'm going to read to you from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. <clears throat> this was the first census that took place while Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him. She was expecting a child, and while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them. In the end. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. 
An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel of the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And Father, we pray today that your favor would rest upon us and that we would be assured of that favor by your word, by your spirit, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, some people just seem to live a charmed life, and it can be, can be hard to be around people like that, because they don't get it. They just don't get difficulty and hardship. They think that their lives are the norm. I, I can tell you, uh, if you're a person like that, who lives a kind of a charmed life, never suffered anything, Really, well, it won't last forever. The world has a way of catching up with all of us. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11 says, I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance overtakes them all. And when things go badly for us, we can look at our situation and we can say, God, it's against me. And it's not an illogical conclusion. It may not be the only logical conclusion we could reach, but it's not an illogical conclusion. After all, if God is God, he's in charge. I think that everybody intuitively knows that, which is why things go bad. We look upward and we say, well, why me? We, we understand that God is in charge. And things happen, it can't be apart from him, not if he's really God. And so when life seems against you, it's not illogical to conclude God is against me. But I think there's another reason, too. When things go badly, we often complain, what did I ever do to deserve this? But deep down, we fear that we might know. Oh, sure, we can point to other people who are worse than we are, and we usually do. But conscience tells us that there's a standard that we ought to live by. We know the standard because we hold other people to it. I always get a kick out of uh, people who um, say, well, there are no moral absolutes. And they, they think that right up until the time they get robbed at gunpoint. And then all of a sudden, they're moral absolutes. Now, we know there's a standard because we hold other people to it. And our consciences tell us that 
we have not always lived up to that standard, that we don't always live up to that standard. And so we suspect that God may be displeased with us. And that suspicion finds some confirmation in the Bible. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 20, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth in their wickedness. Because what may be known about God is evident to them, for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, God's uh, invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly understood through what has been made so that people are without excuse. And that's true not only for irreligious people, but for religious people too, or what we might even call covenant people. The Apostle Paul continues in the book of Romans in chapter 2. He says, therefore, you have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else, for in whatever point you judge the other, you condemn yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. And he goes on to say that all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So we like to do that, right? We like to think that, well, these, you know, these irreligious, godless people, there's something really wrong with them. But Paul takes that in the book of Romans, and he says to religious people, you are no different, and you know better. But we, but we know that deep in our hearts, don't we? And the Bible confirms what we all suspect. That there's a coming day of reckoning. And the Bible refers to that day as a day of judgment or the day of the Lord. You know, I, I think that in the, in the first century, a lot of people who went to synagogue probably heard messages of hope in connection with the coming day of the Lord. Like people in churches today would hear messages of hope with the coming day of the Lord. It was a day when the, when the evil Romans would be vanquished and driven out. It was a day when Israel would gain her national independence. But the truth is that we don't need first and primarily to be saved from the sins of others. First and primarily, we need to be saved from our own sins. Because it's not the sins of others that can separate us from God. It's our own. The prophets were regularly read in the synagogues, and it would be hard to miss certain things in them. I remember as a relatively new Christian reading through the Old Testament and, and being unsettled by some of the things I read about the coming day of the Lord. Isaiah said, not to the nations around, but to God's people in Isaiah 13, wail, 
for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Joel had said, the day of the Lord is dreadful, who can endure it? And Amos, again speaking to God's people, not to the nations around, he says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. That day will be darkness, not light. It doesn't sound too encouraging to me. And when we take it all together, that God really is involved in all the things that happen that come into our lives, that, that life sometimes can be incredibly hard and painful. And that our conscience and, our, and the teaching of the Bible coalesce to tell us there's a standard. We know it. We hold other people to it. That we ourselves transgress. Well, it really wouldn't be a stretch. Wouldn't be illogical when hardship comes into our lives to conclude God is against me. And that would, that's what makes the announcement of Luke chapter 2 such an incredible announcement. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. In the class-conscious society of first-century Palestine, shepherds were on the low rung. They were almost constantly ceremonially unclean because of their work, because they came in contact with carcasses, because they came in contact with blood and with excrement. And that the glory of the Lord should appear to them, I think, to them could have meant only one thing, that judgment day had come upon them. And, and God, in his, in his great mercy in dealing with them, sends one angel ahead. There are others there. They just seem not to be visible to them yet. We read about them in verse 13. Because we read there that there is a, a heavenly host. Uh, what, a heavenly host, right? That's the word that we, the phrase we read in our Bible. What in the world is a heavenly host? What are they, the people who invite us to dinner? What is that, a heavenly host? But the, but the phrase in the Greek, a plethos, stratias, is a huge army. Matter of fact, that word uh, stratias is the word that we get our word <coughs> strategy from. It's a military term. You know, some of you at this time of year um, might have Christmas angel decorations around your house. Any of you have Christmas angel decorations around your house? Please put those completely out of your mind as we read this text. Do, do, do not read those back into this text. 
Because in the Bible, angels are constantly depicted in military terms. Not only the words that are used of them, words like strateas, but in their description. So for example, Adam, after he sinned, is expelled from Eden. And cherubim are sent to enforce the expulsion. What do we find with them? In Genesis 3.24, a flaming sword. Numbers 22, Balaam, son of Peor, encounters an angel. And the text tells us, you can read about it in Numbers 22, 23, that the angel stands there with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua chapter 5, Joshua encounters the angelic commander of the Lord's armies. And what does he have in his hand? Read about it in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13. He stands with drawn sword. I want you to imagine being asleep at night and all of a sudden being woken up by, by incredibly bright light making its way into your drapes and around your windows. And you, and you open the drapes and you see your street full of soldiers. And they're not your soldiers. What do you think your response to that would be? Probably great, great fear. It was a mercy that the presence of this heavenly host was not revealed until after the message was delivered. And what was the message? It was do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For I have been sent with good news a message to cause great joy because the day has come. But it's not a day of judgment. It's a day of salvation. Because there in Bethlehem is born the one to fulfill all of the prophets and he's not come as judge, but he's come as savior. You know, some 30 years after this event, the one in the manger that night would uh, meet on another night with a man by the name of Nicodemus, and he would tell him, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world should be saved through him. And how would God do that? Well, Jesus tells Nicodemus, the whole gospel's right there in John chapter 3, that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. See, friends, I want to tell you that your, that your conscience is not lying to you. The judgment you fear for transgressing that standard that you know, you know it, you hold other people to it. It's, it's real. And it's why Jesus came. He came to take that judgment for your transgression of the standard. He came to be lifted up on a Roman cross 
to suffer the judgment of God. He who knew no sin, Paul tells us, came to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. He came for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? I don't have the wisdom to answer why life is incredibly hard for some people. But I can tell you this. That if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus died. More than that, he was raised to life and is at the right hand of God. And he also prays for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I am convinced that neither death nor life, not angels nor demons, not things present nor things future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I bring you good news of great joy. If you are trusting in Christ and things are hard, it's not because God hates you. It's not because God is against you. He loved you so much that he sent his son for you. Not to judge you, but to take your punishment. Not to condemn you, but to be condemned so that you would be reconciled to God. And what will or even can separate you from the love of Christ? Not trouble, not hardship, not persecution, not famine, not danger, not nakedness, not even death, not angels, not demons, not anything now or in the future. Will you trust in him? Because he invites you to. It's why he came. The prosperity preachers have it wrong. Job's friends had it wrong. Some people, it seems, will have difficulty in their lives, their their whole lives. And I can't tell you why I don't have the wisdom to tell you that. But Jesus came as Emmanuel, as God with us, and he's with you 
in whatever you face. And in Jesus Christ, there's a guarantee that despite your circumstances, God is for you. So much so that he didn't even spare his own son in order to bring you back home and reconcile you to himself. So Stephen Nichols writes in Naomi's Blues, there's hope coming for me. There's hope coming round the bend. I went away full, I'm coming back empty. That's what I said. I went away full, I'm coming back empty. But there's a child been born to my bed. And this is how the Bible records it. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. If you turn to Matthew chapter 1, you'll find that same genealogy embedded in another genealogy that continues until it comes to full expression in the birth of Jesus. So don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. For in the town of David, a Savior has been born for you. For you, he is Christ the Lord. And if God is for you, who or what can be against you? Father, impress that truth upon our hearts when life goes badly. When we, when we feel the weight of the fallen world in which we live. When the accuser of the brethren accuses us day and night. Not with things that are untrue, but with things that are. It wouldn't be illogical for us to conclude that you're against us. But your word tells us something different. And the reality of that has been brought about not only in the speaking of a word, but in the coming of a Savior who lived our life, who died our death, who rose again to reconcile us to you. It's good news. Help us to rejoice and to live in the light of it. And we'll give you praise today and 
then forever through him. Amen.